A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What time is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen, Ken. Hi, Owen, how are you? And Murph. Hey there, Ken. Hey. Oh, Hello, no. Karen, how are you doing? Uh, Champions Cup semi-final weekend in Leinster in a slightly surreal situation. Only a couple of years ago, considered to be arguably the best team in Heineken Cup history. They now travel to Marseille to play Toulon, where they need to produce one of the great all-time shocks to get to another final. But this is the magic of sport. Shocks can happen. We all remember James Wilson Douglas versus Mike Tyson in 1990. The USA versus England, 1950 mm-hmm. World Cup. Mm-hmm. Awfully against Kerry, 1982 All-Ireland Final. Ah, they even recorded a song about it. Five in a row. They called it... Uh, well, that's the point I wanted to raise, Miff, because all of those events had something in common, which I don't think we're going to see, unfortunately, in Marseille this weekend. A massive amount of hubris on behalf mm. of the favourites. Yes. I don't think I don't think Mike Tyson really thought he was going to lose to Buster Douglas. I'm, I'm pretty sure the English press didn't expect their beloved boys to go to their first ever World Well, Cup you've heard the story, of course. The, so. the mining village of Belo Horizonte, I remember seeing it described as the mining village of about... Uh, well, currently six million people. <laughs> uh, probably quite a lot even back then, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, certainly a lot more than uh, village size. But you remember the story on about the zero one scoreline that disbelieving uh, uh, newspaper new- editors back newsrooms home. back home changed to ten one because ah, it couldn't be. No, we we didn't lose to the USA. Come on, and uh, so I mean the levels of hubris were off the charts. Mike Tyson just wasn't really. Wasn't quite into the boxing thing at that mm. stage. Not in amazing shape against Buster Douglas. There were a few issues around that. Uh, Kerry, you mentioned there were, the song, there were T-shirt songs. Weren't there arguments in advance about the homecoming? Was yeah, that there that was year? a big, big row over what town was going to host. See, you know, the ho- <laughs> this is always a thing that's destroying. Oh, you know, they're planning their homecoming. Well, you kind of have to plan your homecoming because, you know, you have to get the guards involved and stuff like that. I mean, it's not hubris to say no. if we win. But in the, the Kerry situation, it... It was actually there was a big row over whether Killarney or Tralee were going to host the winning team first, 
Um, yeah, I think that's I think that is different from I know what you're talking about. Oh, Germany have booked their hotels right the way through to the final. Yeah, well, well, that's good planning. Whereas yeah, this I mean, is a fairly unseemly spat between local riders about who's going to get to celebrate the certain victory <laughs> that's going to arrive here. Yeah, five in a yeah. Row. The song was yeah. The song was about. Now I should say the the players didn't. It wasn't like an FA Cup final song. They didn't record a song called the five in a row. <laughs> that would have been in fairness. That's not going to rub people up the right way at all. But um, yeah, there were uh, there were quite a few of those. Jerry Thorny and Shane Horgan are on today on that game. What are your thoughts on stadium naming rights, Ken? Would you be aggrieved if Croke Park was to one day be called Sky Park? <laughs> Sky Park. <laughs> that was suggested. I, th- I think that was suggested in the Irish Times piece by you know. Not that it should be uh, named that, but that that uh, that could throw up some potential. Difficulties. So what's happened here, Ken? Pork Duffy was asked yesterday at the. We talked in the football podcast about how John Delaney was reluctant to, to speak about anything yeah. uh, besides just the strict funding that was being announced at that day. That was all. There was he said to the journalists there, "We're not going to talk about other issues surrounding the FAI. I'll chat to you at the FAI AGM, which goes against all recent tradition at that particular yeah. AGM. But the other guys are more expansive. Uh, in fact, we've got a couple of things out of the other heads that we can talk about in today's show because Philip Brown, chief executive of the IRFU, said that confirmed that they do want to sign up Joe Schmidt in the next mm-hmm. couple of months, get that done long before the World Cup for a new contract. And uh, Pork Duffy, GA Director General, was asked about naming rights and whether Croke Park, for example, would ever be called something else. And he didn't rule it out. Now, he didn't rule it out in the sense that he said it could happen in 50 years. I mean, it's not going to happen now. But even the fact that he clarified that today, Murphy thought was interesting uh, on the website. He he pretty much repeated what he said, but just clarified what he meant by it. Hmm. Uh, It it just indicates to me that he's aware that people see Croke Park in a certain way for whatever reason. And this is a subject that gets people going. Yeah, it's weird because of the names involved, like, Dr. Crow, the patron of the GA, was the Bishop of uh, Cashel and Emily. And the, so the croak part is not something that's particularly evocative, funnily enough. But I mean, the, the names of uh, Michael Cusack, Michael Hogan, uh, Michael Hogan really, more so than anything else, I think, is the, is the, is the most emotive issue here at, at play. That this guy uh, died playing the Gaelic games at Crow Park on Bloody Sunday in 1920 and that you would in, in some way demean the memory, lessen the memory of his life and the fact that, and his death by calling it the, for what, you know, whatever you like, Sky, the Sky Ireland Hogan Stand, whatever. Um, that, 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 that That's the issue. That's the big issue. You know, it's, it's not like, say, other grounds where, it's the name of the ground that is the most evocative thing. It's actually the Hogan stand. That's the big issue, I think, for people. And Bloody although, although Sunday, more say, so yeah, than... But there's nobody saying that each stand would have to be renamed in a, at the moment, hypothetical uh, yeah. naming rights issue. That, what I was interested was, poor Duffy said it's never been brought up. Nobody's ever made the offer for the naming rights, which I found absolutely staggering. Mm. I would have thought it's a fairly standard thing for the big companies uh, anywhere who are getting involved in sports sponsorship. To I mean, the Aviva obviously snapped up Lansdowne Road, I would have thought it was quite an obvious thing to do. The, the obvious thing to do would be for the GAA to go and offer it to people. Is that the way that would work? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it's always the way it works, but it's definitely the way, say, Manchester United works. Mm. Um, I'm, I was reading about this today. There's quite an interesting piece by uh, Simon Cooper about a, a new book that's come out by the spokesman, a guy who worked as a spokesman for the Glazer family for many years. Uh, and he talks a lot about... It's, it's an interesting piece. You can check it out. It's on ESPN, but... Um, the relevant bit here is that United actually aggressively went out 
offering sponsorship opportunities. Like, for instance, they would do mock-ups of, of shirts with, like, corporate logos on them and send them off. And, like, they'd get, like, an expensive sort of black box and send them off to, you know, the marketing director of, you know, big corporations. So apparently the Aon sponsorship that they had for a while came about literally because they... They're cold calling. They sent they sent Aon, like, you know, you don't even need to imagine what it would look like for Rooney to wear your shirt. Here it is. And the guy is like, well, what's this, you know, package for you here? And he takes it out and it's like, you know, what is this? This, this looks... I, I like this. It's awesome. Look, that's the name of our company right there. Aeon. So, Unbelievable. So, so God knows how many... I could never have imagined it. You know, my, my imagination couldn't stretch as far as to replace the name of my company with the, uh, the, the name of the current company with the name of my company. They've, mm. But they've, this, now that they've done it, it's really opened my eyes. And this would be an amazing... So that's what they do. They don't wait for the companies to come to them. They go and, and, and chase it. So maybe the GAA aren't too pushed about it. I mean, what would the GAA need the money for? You know, they're going to start paying their players. If not, I suggest don't sell the naming rights. Yeah, well, anyway, they're not going to for the next 50 or 100 years, it sounds like. But we're going to talk to Michael Foley, author of The Bloodied Field, about why this can become an emotive subject. I think that ties in, having Michael on ties in with what you were saying. He obviously wrote that incredible book about the most infamous day in Croke Park history, Bloody Sunday in 1920. Ken, quite a night of Champions League football last night. Yeah, it really was. Um, amazing stuff. Uh, just as far as finally is, has found himself again. Um, he, has, he is now showing just how good he is after, I think, maybe struggling a bit at Barcelona initially, obviously he couldn't play for the first couple of months, and then um, then was a little bit freaked out by having to come up to this standard of, of Messi, you know, trying to win his approval. I think he's now succeeded in that. They're now friends. They're always posting photos of themselves with each other. Messi's like, amigo. He, was, he bestows the word amigo on Luis Suarez. This did not happen to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. This did not happen to Alexis Sanchez or any of these other players. But Suarez has got the imprimatur. Uh, you know, there's, there's obviously a grammatical change that you have to make in Spanish. You know, you use the formal yeah. and then the informal. To and instead, is it? I hope, actually, that Lionel Messi does that <laughs> with all of his teammates. It's the formal one. And then the, the person that he, he feels, right, okay, you're at my level. I'm going to use the informal. But it shouts really, like shouts across the dressing room at Luis Suarez <laughs> using the informal. It, just so everyone knows, yeah. you know. Is it slightly overplayed just how frosty Messi can be to these guys coming in? Because in Zlatan's book, he eviscerates that bald-headed Plus psychopath bridge. or whatever he calls <laughs> uh, Pep Guardiola yeah. uh, quite regularly. But with Messi, he speaks... I wouldn't say with fondness, but he respect speaks with a lot of respect. It doesn't, and if Zlatan really felt felt as though Messi was disrespecting him, I'm sure he would have revealed it in the book. Yeah, he basically. I mean, he kind of accepts that Messi is the best. You know, um, that's it's, it's not like he's saying I was a better player than Messi. He's not saying that at any point. What he's saying is Messi was demanding to play in the middle, and I can't play in the wing. I, I weigh a hundred kilos. I'm not going to run around on the wing. Yeah, it was very much a footballing issue that he yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's a centre forward but Messi wanted to be the centre forward so that meant there was no place I mean that's what he say he doesn't he doesn't sort of um, I don't think hold it against him but he does kind of say well Messi talked me out of there so <laughs> not great time for one of these I've got a call here that says you're the most boring predictable condescending interviewer around go back to lecturing you have the charisma of a sick bag oh god that's just I just wow. mentioned not you no me okay ain't nobody fucking with my click we don't normally click, broadcast click, all the, the stuff click, that comes from scum click, around the country ain't nobody fresher than my mug mug click 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 Today's comeback in. 
well, we've received an email Alan, from the director of celebrity relations at uh, Famous Birthdays, uh, which we're told is a popular celebrity website receiving only over seven million unique users monthly. Uh, they say, "I'm contacting you because this person has an MBA." Incidentally, according to their um, email sign-off. I'm contacting you because many of Kieran Murphy's fans have been searching for him on our website. We'd love to add him to famous birthdays. However, since we don't have enough information about him, we haven't yet created his famous birthdays profile. If he'd like to be added to famous birthdays, please send over a short bio, brackets information about w- before he was famous and, wh- and what he does. Close brackets. And what he does now. And what he does, yeah. Uh, close brackets. Including his birthday, birth year, birthplace and headshot. Kieran's fans would be very excited to find him on Famous Birthdays. I look forward to hearing from you. So, a name name with editor. That is uh, pretty incredible. Uh, have, w- have you sent on a headshot? I haven't because I'm, I'm unsure as to whether this is an identity f- uh, theft uh, scam. Why would you even question this? I mean, it all appears to me to be perfectly above board and uh, sensible. I did check out Famous Birthdays and... Um, there aren't actually many famous people who share your birthday, Karen. It's a bit of a... It's yeah, a, it's a bit no, of a it's really Lindsay, low. Lindsay Lohan is probably the top one. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kay, Margot Robbie. Um, yeah, Larry David. Well, that's good. That's yeah, bad. Larry David. Yeah, I remember Larry David and Lindsay Lohan uh, uh, being mentioned before. Patrice Lumumba, uh, deceased uh, leader of the Congo. Do you know what I think has happened here, by the way, with Kieran Murphy being regularly searched on that website? What? If you ever type in Kieran, I'm just going to say autocorrect can easily make that a Killian. Right? Oh. So that's what could be happening here. Why Killian you, Murphy. Why, why are you ruining this? I'm just mate? saying, why Killian Murphy, esteemed Irish actor, might be the guy that people want to find that's, out his birthday. Honest, I, I actually think that's, that's outrageous. <laughs> Where do you get off, McDevitt? Oh, listen, I'm sure they'll come calling in due course on. I, I have been looking around at uh, this kind of whole internet world of birthday related sites. Mm hmm. Um, this is the uh, fame, uh, people born on July 2nd. Well, it says personality traits and characteristics of famous people born on July 2nd. <laughs> um, generally warm, sympathetic and accommodating. Being very sensitive, they sometimes erect a wall around their emotions and react strongly to injustice. Uh, they are good at self-analysis, but they may be lacking a little in confidence. Uh, by the time they reach middle age, they usually loosen up and become more open and unperturbed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty... I'm pretty close on that. Yeah. No. Yeah, you're, you're, you're no, no Murph's quite, open. Up Murph's quite open for a, for an Irish man. You think? Yeah, I think I've cried in front of McDevitt many times. Many, many, many times. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen him cry. You know that? I've known him a long time, but I've never seen him cry. You've never, never seen, seen me cry. cry? No, I don't think so. I mean, not a lot. I'll tell know. you the one time you might have seen me cry, right? Uh, Katie Taylor's first fight yeah. in the London 2012. Oh, sure, you were over at the London 2012. I actually cried why I don't know in, in it was just so much emotion a nervous sympathetic response to all the punches she was delivering to the end of her opponent's nose well it was actually it was the fight against uh, the British N- girl Natasha Jonas yeah exceptional work McDevitt I have to say I'm impressed after and my Jimmy Greer shout last week I'm, yeah, I'm on fire with fire. random names um, yeah that, I think that might have been the only time you'd have seen me cry I think yeah. well Murph's a very quiet but cry worry, it's, it's, all, it's very much shoulder shaking but no there I'm, are, a, I'm a rock on most yeah, of the time. There are no visible tears there. It's time to talk rugby. Shane Horgan is ready to go on Leinster 2. Simon has popped over. Simon, how are you? 
Hey, how's it going? Uh, not too bad. And Jerry's popped in. How are you doing? Uh, great. We're looking forward to it. We'll get into the Mission Impossible in a couple of moments, but the story in the papers today, Jerry, is that Joe Schmidt, the IRFU, not too surprisingly, are trying to sign him up before the World Cup. Philip Brown confirmed this and says he hopes to do it in the next couple of months. Have it finalised that he'll be on for a longer term. Now, the only issue with this, both in Irish rugby and in other sports over the years, sometimes happens where a guy gets tied up to a longer term contract and it turns out the best years have already happened. Yeah. Is there any danger of this here? Like Paul Lambert or Alan Pardew, whatever, this season and so forth. Yeah, uh, I Alan mean, Pardew got an eight-year contract. Yeah, which and that was just, you just <laughs> knew that was never, never going to be seen, yeah. seen out. Um, yeah, there, you, you get examples where it works and doesn't work. I'm a year out from the, well in advance of the 07 World Cup, Eddie O'Sullivan was under contract till the end of the 07-08 season and got a four-year extension in advance, which I think was set to keep him in the job for 11 years in total or 10 years, whatever. This is slightly different in that um, Joe's only coming to the end of his first World Cup cycle and it's not even a full World Cup cycle. If you go through the history of World Cups, both uh, Clive Woodward and Graham Henry led their countries to World Cup glory in the second of two full, complete World Cup cycles. In other words, they're eight years in the job. I think there's merit to it. Obviously, Joe Schmidt is a contender for best coach in the world and why wouldn't you want to tie him down? Who'd want to follow him? You know, that's, and there's no obvious successor. I think it's a great idea. I hope they succeed. After all, Warren Gatlin's already been tied down for another four years. So is Stuart Lancaster. You'd almost like that this had been done already. If Joe Schmidt doesn't stay on and they don't negotiate a new deal, you have a situation where Les Kiss leaves at the end of the World Cup. Joe Schmidt stays on to the end of the season. Right, that's how the contracts, that's the contracts how are at the moment. I think it's a real shame that Les Kiss is moving on. I would love to have seen them. Although he's been seven years in the job, I would have liked to... Have, if they, you've got a situation now where already the forwards coach has been exchanged halfway through this t- Joe Schmidt's tenure and now you're going to have Joe Schmidt maybe having a say or not in the appointment of a new defensive coach and whether or not Joe Schmidt so ideally you'd want Joe Schmidt to stay on appoint a new defensive coach after the World Cup who will be there for four and a half seasons Shane the reason to get somebody to tie Joe Schmidt up early on is obviously you're warding off any potential suitors and we're, we're all kind of assuming that New Zealand might want him at some stage sooner rather than later. Now when we speak to Matt Williams about this, Matt has a different perspective that and maybe it's changed after this Six Nations but certainly before it he was saying that look what Schmidt is doing up there doesn't register to the same extent in the Southern Hemisphere as you might think. So is there any, is there any danger that we're, we're warding off a preemptive strike by New Zealand that might never come? Um there is you know potential for that um but um i don't think the case is whether it comes or not um from new zealand or whether it comes from france or or one of the other heavy hitters although gatland and, and lancaster are signed up already mm. um i think the value is how good has joe been for ireland um what's his value as a coach to the irish setup um is he going to contribute or do we want him to contribute the next four four years do we see him as the person that we want to go to and if that's the case uh let's not concern ourselves about uh, whether he's wanted by other people just make the decision on whether we want him or not and let that be the criteria uh, for uh, extending his contract or not and I think every indication that we've seen so far, he hasn't been in the job very long, um, but he's ticked almost every box so far. And, and I think from our own perspective, uh, continuity after this World Cup would be um, desirable. Shane talks about value there, Jerry, And mm-hmm. you know, he's been in Ireland five years and he's won a trophy every all, season, all five of those years. So mm-hmm. he has not failed. That's all stating the obvious, but still really important. But then um, below that level, that elite level, I feel like you're getting a lot of value for money from Joe Schmidt. 
because of he goes around the provinces and he looks at the women's game. He's interested in every aspect of schools Irish rugby well, schools. Yeah. He, he gives so much of himself. We know behind the scenes he, he talks at certain clubs. Um, you know, he just he wants Irish rugby to get better. It's kind of his obsession pay him money and, and get him to do this absolutely and he also has a really good working relationship with David Nusifor whom he knows a long time back as well and you'd like them at the helm together for another four years after the after the conclusion of next season so it takes a lot of boxes and also you know what, despite what Matt says uh, ironically enough about uh, the week after the Six Nations title um, New Zealand Radio rang me and asked me to do an interview for them and they are very aware of what Joe Schmidt is, uh, is about and they seem to think that you know that there would be a keen interest in bringing really, him back yeah. to New Zealand. And so maybe this, in fairness to even to Matt, that that conversation was at the start of the Six Nations. Exactly, it might have changed I think, over the course. Yeah, of and particularly season. the manner of the Six Nations triumph, just that whole final day. I think that would have grabbed a lot of attention in New Zealand. And I started telling, him, yeah, he's the best coach in the world, and he's done this, that, and the other. And then I realized, wait a second, why am I saying this in live in New Zealand? <laughs> no, shred all that. He's a useless coach. It's just down to great players. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, let's talk Lancer too. On your work on the game for Sky. Please give me one reason why Leinster can win this game. I can give you a number of reasons. I think uh, Toulon don't have a brilliant defensive system, for one. And that's uh, one that can be broken down. And they have weaknesses in a number of areas in, in the field. Um, defensively, I think if you run straight into them, if you run into the channel between the Rook and Ten, um, then they'll defend very strongly. They'll probably dominate you physically. And um, there's a good chance that Armitage will get on the ball and turn you over. But... Um, if you do analyse this team there's a number of areas that you can go after that they aren't so clever at Um, they get away with a lot of mistakes in the defensive system because they retain the ball for so long and um, the, the opposition don't get many chances and then they employ another tactic that sort of um, an up and out defence when they use, sorry an in and up defence that they use that the wingers often use um, and make reads and it forces or generally forces less skilled teams into making poor decisions whether that be throw a pass that isn't on or don't throw a pass that is or tuck the ball and carry when the ball should be um, moved across the back line so you know, they sort of put you under pressure and they occasionally make wrong reads, but they've got, you know, some good scramble, good, some good speed in the back line that gets them out of a lot of trouble. The other area defensively that they're, you know, there's a huge opportunity to exploit is um, the around the pillar after the ball has moved one or two um, um, zones out from from the rook. There's a huge amount of space back in there because they're pillars, unlike pillars in England and Ireland, and sorry, the UK and Ireland. They uh, they don't stay. They're not stationary. They they move on a bit of a drift, and that goes for the pillar, which is the first defender on either side of the rook, and probably the second and third defender. They move far too early. So if you can do something to get them to move and then get the ball back in there. And we've seen Lancer do that before. We saw them do it against Claremont um, in the in the 2012 semi-final. We've seen Rob Carney do these kind of things very often um, for uh, Ireland. And we've also seen a couple of moves of, of revolving around Sean Cronin where the ball go back, goes back inside. That there's, a, there's an opportunity to exploit that uh, defensive frailty. So listen, there's a huge amount of pluses to Toulon's game. Uh, but there are there are minuses as well, and they can be exploited. Now, whether Leicester can do them or not, do that or not, is another matter. Matter. Yeah, Shane, you you, you talk about those flaws um, Toulon have, and actually the French press have, have spoken about a bit recently um, that they're not quite what they were in the last couple of seasons. But 
the Dragons have flaws. Uh, Leinster didn't find enough of them. All these much lower level Pro 12 teams are giving Leinster problems. Is Leinster Leinster's problem more than Toulon is? Yeah, possibly, yes. I, I, I think that. Uh, I think the other thing about Toulon is if they go for a, a 10 12 of uh, Michelac and uh, Gitto, there's a huge defensive channel there that um, is ripe for ex- exploitation, along with being able to rattle the 10 of an opposition. So, uh, another Lancer team or a Lancer team performing at its best, I'd say there's you know there's there's an opportunity here, uh, but the opportunity is lessened by the fact that Lancer haven't put a big performance together this season so far. They haven't put a really really high quality performance where they've really challenged their skill set and they've been incisive and they've been and they've broken down a, a team um, really um, by by. They've broken down a team by being um, very uh, sophisticated in their game plan, uh, gameplay, and uh, because of that, uh, because they haven't been doing it for so long, and they certainly haven't been doing it when the more experienced players have been away, the lack of continuity and consistency um, and performance of uh, uh, at a certain level week in week out, I think to me indicates that it's very difficult to have a one-off performance. You can have a one-off performance. You can have a, a one-off emotional performance, and we've seen Munster and years go by have massive one-off emotional performances. But I think you need more than just an emotional performance to beat this Toulon side. You need the emotional performance, yes, but you need it coupled with the sophistication to unlock um, the defence, which which can be unlocked. Jerry? Yeah, and to add to that, if you're just going to concentrate on Toulon for the time being, um, are they going to be the best side in the history of this competition? Which, winning three in a row, they would be. I don't think they are. I think it's a difficult thing to do, and I've got a hunch they're not going to do it. Um, Grenoble showed last weekend, okay, it wasn't a full-strength um, Toulon team, and it wasn't anything like the intensity you're going to see in the, in the start of Velodrome on Sunday, but three of their four tries were by going through ten, places, ten phases or more. Now, that is much more difficult to do when Stefan Armitage and Matthew Bastor are on the pitch, and you add in Chris Masoe and Fernandes Lobby. They are the best in the tournament at um, turning over ball and scoring off it or getting three points off it, and they've got to, you know, they can score from anywhere up to 55 metres with Dylan Armitage and Lee Halfpenny in the team. But, you know, um, Stefan Armitage, if Wayne Barnes is going to be a key factor, he's always a central factor, factor in any game, let's be honest about it. He's very, a very domineering, influential referee. More, you know, you see him and you hear him a lot in every game he officiates in. But if he's going to be consistent with his performance in Cardiff, when he was much stricter in this interpretation of players, the tact are not releasing or players getting their hands over the ball, then Stefan Armitage is liable to be penalised. And, and, you know, Bernard Jackman is quite specific about this. They are illegal in a lot of what they do. They really push the boundaries in the tackle area more than anybody else, particularly with the tackler not releasing for that split second to allow others in and the second assistant tackler not releasing either and, and getting his hands over the ball. If Barnes is going to be as consistent as he was in Cardiff, that's going to be a plus for Leinster. Um, it's hard to think that Wayne Barnes might be a plus for any Irish team, but that is a possibility. Um, and then, of course, as the Wasps game also showed, if you go attack them wide, as James said, they can defend very narrowly. Wasps scored a couple of tries. And I think also that last 15 minutes against Wasps in the quarterfinal showed that um, Toulon might be a little bit edgy and jittery because they expect to win. Uh, if the game is still tied, a one-score game entering the last 20 or 15 minutes, and that maybe Leinster's fitness levels would, would come into play then. The one factor about that, unfortunately, is that Leinster, a lot of the Leinster players have been through a lot this season, of late, and they haven't had much respite, and they haven't played together as a team much, and they looked as if they were blown a bit heavy against Bath in that quarterfinal yeah, themselves. It's an interesting one because the, uh, Toulon have only won a second half, Simon tells me, twice in the top 14 this season, 
As like, in they've only outscored the opposition in that second in, half. In that yeah. second half, which is fa- fairly staggering. In some cases, they're generally winning games. So in some yes. cases, you could be letting up a little bit. But and they are top of the table. So top of the table. Yeah, yeah. But, it does show but they, sometimes it's quite visible that yeah, you can they, see they that blow they teams hit a flat, out in the first flat, half and then they, and they yes, flat go period, a little yeah. bit flat. Yes. Is, is there any point in taking any confidence from that? No, they are an old side and they're an ageing side. And they're, you know, as, like I said, as was showed, if you move that juggernaut of a pack around a bit, you can get some joy and you can get mismatches. Um, but you have to be, you have to play with an awful lot more ambition. Matt O'Connor maintains that Leinster played with a lot of ambition in the quarterfinal. I know Shane Horgan disagrees him fundamentally in that because I can only remember Jimmy Gopper throwing out one skip pass in the entire match and that was when they had an advantage play. But they had opportunities off turnovers. Toulon had the highest rate of offloads in the tournament. Leinster the lowest. But Leinster showed in the final last year against Glasgow of the league that, you know, specific game plan for a team that offloads a lot. They flood those channels, make turnovers and attack off turnovers. They could have some joy there. Um... It is, of course, all predicated on this being a one-off performance because that is the fundamental point in all of this, as Shane says. This is based purely on faith. There's no hard evidence of Leinster producing the kind of performance required on Sunday, even once this season. And there are also lots of issues like their kick-chase game, their breakdown work, their defence, which is leaking like a soup strainer, and their attacking game, which hasn't functioned as well as it might have done this season. Shane, Sean Cronin has some good quotes this week. He actually was talking about Wayne Barnes as well and how... He feels a lot of the Irish players who also play for Leinster may have learnt a lot from that game and that Joe Schmidt gave them a bit of a debriefing afterwards so that may benefit them. But one of his other quotes was, I think individually and collectively some lads are going to have to play the best they've played this season in a few seasons if we're going to come away anyway close to getting a result. Would you agree? Um, Well, I I suppose if if you're talking about the best that they've played for Leinster this season or in, in a couple of seasons, then probably yes. Uh, I think we've seen some really stellar performances, though, from Leinster players playing for Ireland. Um, you know, both in the Six Nations and, uh, and certainly in the uh, Autumn Internationals. So that's another that's another question, another issue altogether. Uh, that you're getting players playing, you know, close to their top for Ireland, but they're not yet firing or not being um, coaxed to, to fire their best game when they're playing for Leinster. Um, I do think though the performance level that he talks about is is you know is correct and uh, are having to bring a really top performance or some of your best uh, games but also that's not you know that's not unusual to say that um it's a semi-final of europe and it's an away semi-final um against the champions of the last two years so i don't think he's saying anything controversial there no, although, although Shane, he is saying prob- that they have to do all that if we're going to come anyway close to getting a result now we're spitting hairs maybe over phraseology but i thought that was interesting yeah. it wasn't just we have to do this to win it is almost is there a danger that in somewhere in the back of leinster players heads they think right we we go over we give it our all we suffer a heroic defeat that's actually that's actually quite acceptable no, I, I don't think that is the case. Uh, I, I don't think it is because maybe a, a number of years ago, again, in a Leinster team or in an Irish team um, that wasn't used to the success that this Leinster team were, are used to or the individual success that these players have had. Look at these players. These players have won grand team Players in this Leinster team that have won a grand slam and have just won two uh, Six Nations back-to-back. They have A number of them have three Heineken Cup medals. 
um, and they only know success. They've got, you know, um, they've got a, a bag full of, of Pro 12 medals. So, uh, you know, for, for to, to think that their ideology and their self-belief has, when playing for Leinster has changed to such a degree that they think that it's, it's okay to go down there and lose. I just don't accept that's the case, actually. I think, you know, I think what Sean Cronin was stating there was that, uh, you know, they will have to perform at their best because it's a semi-final of Europe. Um, and maybe, you know, we're reading a little bit too much into the fact that, you know, to get anywhere close or to win, I would say, I suggest that, you know, there was a similarity of meaning there. Yeah, this is why players are reluctant to, to reveal anything in interviews, Shane. I know, I you're picking them to pieces picking over to pieces phraseology. Throwing on I, a, I was a, there a, for that press conference and Sean Cronin just spoke really well, right. very candidly. And he was just, he was basically what he was saying, this is a do or die game for us. The league's more or less gone and we're up against the best team in Europe and we're just going to have to produce the best performance we produce all season. And, and that's all pretty much a case of reality. So you and don't think there's any, do you agree with Shane that there's nothing possibly in the back of the players' minds that... that God no, a close, no, a close no, defeat is no, not embarrassing no. or not. No, I mean there are four: the Luke Fitzgerald, Keen Healy, Devon Toner, Sean O'Brien, Jamie Heaslip. These are all two-time uh, Heineken Cup winners. There are three-time Heineken Cup winners even, and you know they've won Six Nations titles to beat the band. They they only play to win, and I do, I do think they realise the scale of the task, and there's no harm in that. And in, in a weird way, even losing the Dragons and, and basically kissing goodbye to their league hopes might just concentrate minds because they know their entire season hinges in this game on Sunday like no other game they played this season. Is that good motivation in some ways, Shane, a desperation that they, they know it's a last shot? You know, I don't think so. I think he ramped up too much pressure on these players for this and I don't know how how wise it was. I know he, he made a lot of changes uh, to in the Dragons game. I don't know, maybe he's going to be one starter starting this week. Um I know there's an issue with fatigue, but he's in effect um, given up the Pro 12. They're not going to qualify for the for the top four now unless there's some sort of um, miracle. Um, so it is all on this game. Um, that ramps up the pressure as well. But from his own point of view, um, I, I think to be out of everything possibly after this Saturday or in effect to be out of everything it was was a real roll of the dice and I, he could have maybe mixed his bag a little bit and, and really gone for that win against the Dragons. The, the sort of weaknesses that you talked about earlier, Shane, and whether or not Lencer can exploit them, was there anything in the quarterfinals to suggest that those defensive uh, were essentially almost, if you're if spotting them that clearly, that their system failure, so they will happen again, you're, you're confident about that. How can Leinster actually go about? What do they have to do differently to what they did in the quarterfinal? To because they said themselves afterwards they, they tried to move it wide. They were happy with some of the stuff they did, but they felt that just basic handling errors let them down quite a lot. Yeah, it did. And you know, we've spoken about this. I don't know how many times we've spoken about this over the course of this season about what Leinster need to do better. And what they need to do is, and we've all consistently said the same thing: they need to challenge their own skill set. And um, by you know putting themselves in a flatter position, by accepting the ball under more pressure, by transferring the ball from one player to another when it's actually a difficult skill to to do, and you know that's what they have to be have to do. But they also have to be able to do it. They have to back their skills, and they have to have the skills to do it. Now the problem with that is that if you're not and performing and executing those type of skills under that type of pressure week in week out it becomes redundant and you're not as good at doing it as you, as you were and that's why um, I think that the team under Schmidt was so good because it didn't matter if they were playing Dragons and it didn't matter if they were missing 10 players there was an absolute demand that 
the skill they're executing be done in the correct area and in the right way, not just what you needed to get by to beat the Dragons or to beat Glasgow or Edinburgh or whoever it was, that it was more of a challenge against the individual. And I think that's just something that slipped a little bit in Leinster in the last while, that it's a lot has been brushed under the carpet with regard to how skills are being executed because of results. And now, even now, the results are failing. Then there's a huge spotlight under what's going wrong. And I think it's those two things. They're not putting themselves under enough pressure and they're not ex- now they're not executing the skill well enough because, you know, on, on, to some degree, I can see what uh, Matt O'Connor was saying with last w- weekend. They were trying to, uh, you know, to move the ball and sometimes they were holding inside reasonably well, but it was breaking down then one channel out because those players aren't used to executing under the pressure that came with the quarterfinals. So you can imagine how much more difficult it's going to be with a semi. Yeah, Jerry Matt O'Connor has had to go public this week and say, it doesn't affect him that people are suggesting he should lose his job, which is, you know, another little thing he's had to deal with or whatever he says to us about it not affecting him. That's one other thing that he's had to deal with this week and he's aware of the negativity swirling around the team and particularly him. On the opposite side of that, um, Bernard Laporte is aiming for three European Cups in a row. Um, it's never been done before. He leaves at the end of this season. Um, in Ireland, all we ever hear about is the Toulon players, the Stars, the World Cup winners that have come in here. Um, and turn them into a brilliant side. But Laporte, arguably, is the best French coach, um, both internationally and, and club level, over the last 15, 20 years. Um, he's seen as an absolute hero over there. He gets very, li- very little um, coverage over here. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that he has that idea in his head of the legacy that he will leave if he gets three Europeans in a row, that's another thing going against Leinster this weekend. Yeah, um, you know, Toulon were known as a bit of a... a bunch of party animals, a bit of a drinking culture there until until Laporte was brought in and he's very much the man who's instilled the discipline and the sense of spirit that clearly runs through that club and no matter what stage of the careers the players are at and how much they're being paid, they really buy into the whole culture of Toulon and what Toulon represents. Um, It's very much an us against the world mentality. They're not very well liked in the rest of France. Mourad Boulajal and Bernard Laporte are constantly at war with the outside world, be it the French Federation, French Canel Plou, whoever it is, E or or C, they're at war, all the other clubs, other coaches. Um, But it works. And you're right, Laporte leaves the end of the season, so does Pierre Mignoni. Um, I think Diego Dominguez is going to take over as head coach and Laporte will be some small advisory capacity there, but he's going to leave a huge void. Um, and I think, yeah, it's certainly he's a very pragmatic coach as well who comes up with good game plans in given days. And the other concern, to add to all of what you've just said there, is that this Toulon team, it doesn't really matter how well they've been playing and there have been signs of real improvement. They were very good against Toulouse, even though they lost to Toulouse in, in, the, vel- in the velodrome two weeks ago. They were very good um, against Wasps for large chunks and they were very good against Grenoble in winning away. And they've got a superb squad. They've basically got two sets of packs, one for the domestic league and one for the European Cup. These are riddled with World Cup winners, high-achieving kind of players. I mean, we're talking about Leinster's high-achieving players, but Toulon's are off the Richter scale. And they've proven themselves to be a big occasion team, Simon. That's what worries me, that they will raise their game because they won five knockout matches out of five last season and they've already won another one this season. And they, they must be eyeing up another double. So no shock for you? What's your prediction? It's very hard, as Shane says, when you talk, this has been a one-off performance. It's, if you were to back Leinster, it would be purely on blind faith that they are somehow going to improve their defence, which has 
I think, missed 90 tackles in the last four matches and conceded 13 tries. They've won two of their last seven. There's a clear confidence issue when games get tight in the last 20 minutes. Against Bath, you saw it, they got a bit jittery. Having been a game that they looked at, they might pull away from. Their kick chase is not strong. Their breakdown work needs to be better. And their attacking strategy, they've got to move them around and take out Armitage as much as they humanly can. Armitage is going to get three or four turnovers minimum. He does that in every game he plays. He should be in the World Cup squad. If he's not, it's good for everybody else. Um, it's just very I look back at the team that Leinster produced to beat Claremont in a very similar position three years ago in that semi-final and that had Brian O'Driscoll Gordon Darcy Johnny Sexton you know Brad Thorne these are players that just you know you cannot say the current team is on a par with them they might surprise us all and prove it on Sunday and I sincerely hope they do but it's very hard to forecast that they will Alright Shane will you forecast that they will? No I won't I think it's possible that they can but I don't think that they will I think it's very unlikely that they will um, for <laughs> pretty re- much every reason that uh, yeah. Jerry has outlined there. All right, listen, we'll leave it there. Shane Horgan, brilliant stuff. Jerry Thorney, thank you. Cheers. Thanks. In the final and in again. And here Murph, a pretty bleak picture being painted despite a promising opening mm. to that conversation. I was really saying, well. All Shane is doing is ripping too long from limb to limb their defensive weaknesses, all these mm. things that could be done to them. But just Leinster aren't the team to yeah. <laughs> exploit any of that. I've, I've, got the, I've got the framework, I've got the plan. Uh, we just don't have the man, the man, the man to do the business. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bleak. But I, I just I I was I texted Simon before the Wasps uh, Toulon uh, quarterfinal. I said Wasps to win, Simon. And Simon laughed at me and told me that it was a foolish, stupid thing that I'd said and that I should t- delete it from the internet. Well, he's correct because they lost. Well, yes, on that's true. You have me there, but. I, there's something about Toulon. I just I'm convinced they're not going to win the three in a row. So there's three chances of them, you know, to be knocked out. First one was Voss. That's gone. So it's either Leinster or Claremont now. I just there's something in Murphy's gut that says Toulon aren't going to do it. 
Before we leave the rugby, the news has just come in that Declan Fitzpatrick, the Ulster prop, has had to retire on medical grounds. Unfortunately, he has, this is what the statement says, just in brief from Ulster. In recent seasons, Declan experienced a number of concussive episodes. His symptoms were progressively slower to resolve and he was fre- referred to a leading neurologist by the medical team at Ulster Rugby. Following tests, it was recommended that it would be in his best long-term interests to stop playing. He actually won seven caps for Ireland, three of which were against the All Blacks, which is a weird quirk <laughs> of his, his yeah. international career. Uh, a, a slightly strange one but uh, yeah it's always unfortunate to hear these kind of things and best of luck to, to Declan Fitzpatrick in his retirement at a loose end for something to listen to after this why not try out the latest edition of our Irish Times second captain's football podcast that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well, you can laugh I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me so Richie Sadler was in to talk to us um, about the Champions League and about a couple of other things, laughing gas, um, moral judgment, you know, uh, the screaming, mindless, moronic mob that attends our every... Uh, Every public act now. Huh? Richie was talking about laughing gas as opposed to using and abusing laughing gas in our, in our presence. In a kind of John Snow type experiment. <laughs> the, per- yeah. the entire duration. This of stuff our is podcast. crazy. When John Snow uh, smoked skunk. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah oh, man, was... that was brilliant. Did you read that article? <laughs> and I, wrote, I, I, I ended up watching the program, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, uh, anyway, you should check it out. Check, John, check out John take, Snow. Take me out, take me out of the MRI. This is very scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but absolutely insane. Yeah, the MRI thing was weird. Yeah, he seemed to smoke quite a lot. Though. Nobody needs to go through an MRI scan in that situation. Yeah, it's in, true. in that mental state. Well, I, mean, I know that was kind of the point of the it. whole idea. Yeah. It was yeah, that. Yeah, but, yeah, it was a bit, a bit but we also talked to Raphael Honigstein, who um, was uh, talking to us about two big things. One was Bayern losing to Porto, which was a big surprise result in the Champions League, but also. Jurgen Klopp announcing yesterday that he's going to leave Dortmund at the end of the season, so that was uh, also a big story. We're joined by Michael Foley, the Sunday Times, to talk about Croke Park naming rights. Uh, Michael, this is if you click on the GA website, here's the first thing: you see statement of clarification. Just read out a bit of it. GA Director General Pork Duffy has refuted a claim in today's Irish Times that he had admitted that the GA would be open to selling naming rights to Croke Park. In response to a question from an Irish Times journalist, he had stated that the GA had never received or sought offers for naming rights in Croke Park, nor had the matter been discussed by the GAA. He had said that, that he could not talk for 50 or 100 years down the line, but in terms of the near future, he could not see the GAA selling naming rights to Croke Park. So that was a clarification today. A lot of those facts were in the original piece. What I found interesting was that he did actually feel the need to clarify something which seemed uh, seemed to have been clarified in the piece already. But does this show how touchy the GAA are about this subject? I think... I maybe, but I think probably no more than any other subject that kind of leads us on to talking about the GA and money and the perception in some places that uh, you know the old cliche about the grab all association that they'll sell anything or they'll do anything in any way to make money or to raise money for themselves. Um, I'd say probably, as you say, I mean, the clar- I saw the clarification earlier, and it, as you say, it pretty much echoes what was in the piece anyway. But uh, perhaps maybe they saw the headlines and the ine- maybe kind of preempted the inevitable debate about the notion of Crow Park, I suppose, in particular, um, the name of Crow Park being sold um, for money. Uh, maybe they just felt that it was, it, it was, you know, was obviously double bolting the thing or something just to say, hey, look, we're not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but we're not saying it may never happen. Which I think, to be honest with you, 
I think people in general, I mean, I don't think it's that much of a red flag issue for a lot of GA supporters and people. Anyhow, I mean, you know, naming rights in different grounds have already been sold before. It's sort of a, it's a kind of a Rubicon that's kind of already been crossed. Now, maybe Crow Parents is a different issue, but certainly the the, 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 the the concept of selling the naming rights to a ground, it's, it's something the GA, or the GA, GA people that are already comfortable with. Is Croke Park a little different, though? As you said, you alluded to the fact that it might be, uh, Michael. I, uh, they, I understand that they did try to sell off parts of the ground before. Not parts of the ground. That would be probably quite controversial. But uh, some of the naming rights to parts of the ground. Yeah, that goes back, I suppose, to the last time that they redeveloped the ground, about 15 years ago. Um, and at that time, obviously, the plan was to have what we have now, which is a horseshoe with, with the Hill 16 at the end. And they thought at that time that if the ground was built in a horseshoe with levels, so you'd have like the three levels or whatever, that the Hogan stand, the Cusick stand and the canal end would sort of become redundant. So the theory at the time was that you'd probably have the Hogan level and the Cusack level anyway. And then beyond that I suppose the GA kind of just, just floated the notion that those names could possibly be sold so instead of the Hogan level you might have I don't know the Guinness level or whatever it would be um, the reaction at the time wasn't good uh, I certainly remember um, in Grange Mokler in Tipperary from where, from where Michael, from Michael Hogan was, was, was from um, they, were, they were ready to go to the barricades to, uh, to stop anything like that happening and it kind of just went away again then so I think you know, as you say, I mean, Crow Park it possibly is different. And even, you know, from a marketing side of things, Crow Park as a name has has a certain cachet, it has an identity um, that maybe the GA, if they changed it, they wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily cash in as much as, as well. I mean, Crow Park is a very recognisable name. It's, it's got brand recognition and all those sort of things. Whereas maybe some county grounds even down around in other parts of the country, they just don't have that. I mean, you you have Kingspan, Bresney Park already exists. Glennon Brothers, Pierce Park and Longford. So, like, you know, again, you go back to kind of the core debate. I mean, would anybody really begrudge counties like Cavan and Longford um, the extra few bob that they can generate from selling names, um, selling, selling the naming rights to their grounds, particularly when the names, the original names of the ground don't necessarily have any GAA or sporting resonance in, in, themse- in of themselves. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point as well about those grounds that you've named. Say, Elvery's McHale Park is another one. They're all mm. local businesses that it's the type of sponsorship that GA people have absolutely no issue with whatsoever. It's the local shop sponsoring the local team on a slightly bigger scale. I think it's it gets into a different... Uh, uh, area altogether if you start talking about Crow Park being sponsored by you know, as we were saying earlier like uh, Blackstone or something like that you know some some horrendous mega corporation comes in and sponsors Crow Park suddenly it's a totally different thing to the Kingspan Breffney Park Elvery's McHale Park kind of example Yeah and as I said I don't think that Crow Park in itself is in need of of, of sponsorship anyhow do you know that sort of way I mean the way I always look at Crow Park in relation to the GA, like Crow Park is almost like a separate entity entirely to the rest of the GA. It kind of operates on a different level in every way. And in the same way, in this sense, it doesn't really need to sell its name anyway. Um, whereas, if you look down the country, there are certainly plenty of examples of companies down the country that could look at this, and particularly now with the economy beginning to recover. And as you say, a lot of it is local sponsorship. So, you know, when, when the building trade and all that sort of just collapsed, that really hurt the GA a lot in terms of sponsorship and that. But now that things are starting to turn again and there's a little bit more, uh, I suppose, action in the local economy, you may see this debate coming in a little more. Maybe not even a debate. You may just see 
grounds, like you say, like Elry, the Mikhail Park, Glennon Brothers, as I say, Pierce Park is a good example, again, local local, local uh, firm to take on. It would be interesting in a place like Cork now, for example. I mean, you already have Independent Park, Musgrave, which was Musgrave Park. It would be interesting to see whether, when Parky Creeve is redeveloped, whether they will go down that route. Um, because I'd love to do a straw poll of people walking to Parky Creeve to see how many of them actually know who it's named after. Yeah, all right, we'll leave it there. Listen, Michael Foley, great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Mill. No problem, thanks. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked, answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Cork have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. Yeah, just one further point to raise on this, Murph, and that is the difference between how Croke Park is seen and elsewhere. Obviously, we alluded to the start of the show, and Simon mentioned the marketing element to that, that there's a certain brand associated with Croke Park, and that maybe that's as valuable as selling the rights for for uh, for money, essentially. But also, the these other places around the ground, around the country in Castle Bar and elsewhere I presume that the sponsorship that comes from that it's all good the GA ideally want their county boards to be as self-sufficient as possible completely yeah Yeah. I mean it's it's there is a central fund but there are also they're all little republics uh, operating very much their own budgets I mean Krupark gets involved when they're in trouble but the idea is that they're 100% self-sufficient that uh, if they could pay their own coaches that's what they do you Mm. know that that if, if there's a a pool, I'm sure, from which the the coaches are paid. But if if counties could hire their own coaches, pay their own coaches, uh, build their own stadia, do up their own clubhouses, that's the dream. That's what it's all about. So if Cork County Board can do it over the course of the Porky Cueve uh, redevelopment, if the Antrim County Board can do it over the course of the Caseman Park redevelopment, that's brilliant. And I think that there's no. As uh, as Michael said, the Rubicon's been crossed. I mean, yeah, that, you know, there's they, no there's no principle or anything. There's yeah. there's absolutely not. And again, the, the, and the point I was trying to make by asking Michael that question was, you know, the, the, there are ways of doing this. If it's a local business sponsoring the local team's uh, stadium, then that's it's it's all good. You know, the the advertising is to the local firm, and the local firm would get the benefit of that. Uh, you would hope if the uh, if the team is successful, so that's completely it. Self sufficiency, self sufficiency in a financial sense is one hundred percent the dream. Let's get out of here. There's a football podcast for you to listen to now, though. So uh, do that if you have another hour or so to mm. spare. Hop in the bath if you want. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just I know that there that uh, some listeners enjoy. Uh, listening to us in the back that's all it's not, okay. it's well, not something we might get into at a future date Ken thank you very much thank you Owen. Murph thank you so much thank you Owen. thank you Ken thank you very thanks much thanks very much for listening to this one whether you're in a bath or no take care what's going is that that's the second time it's gone off never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.